So we're walking through the New Testament. Um, you know what? I didn't bring one with me. Is there somebody that has their New Testament actually here with them right now? Somebody close and up front. Um, look at this. Yeah, thank you, sir. Samuel. So, um, yeah, especially we've got a number of college students back, and if you haven't been around, you probably don't know, but we are reading as a whole church through the New Testament together. We have this New Testament that will take you through the New Testament in a year. New Testament reading, Old Testament, it's got a devotional. Um, a lot of us are meeting in groups of three or four going through that. I'm hearing a lot of stories. Um, I'm even hearing stories of people who are doing it with somebody who doesn't know Jesus, some pretty exciting things. So if, if any of you are here and you're like, this is my first time to hear about this, and if you want to take part, um, we got more of these coming on the way. So if, if you're interested, come up afterwards. I'll get your name and phone number, and we'll get you one of these because um, we'd love to have you be a part of the journey that we're taking as a body. So Samuel, thank you for letting me use that, sir. You've got a nice-looking one there. I've got the cool white one right now. Um, okay, so... Just one thing before we launch into the Word of God today, um, two things actually. Today is Right to Life Sunday, and just want to say again, I was talking with my daughter between services that uh, though we live in a culture that does not, uh, as a culture as a whole, does not admit the rights of the unborn, that at 12th Avenue we stand holy, holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, uh, on the word of a holy God, that he creates every human being in his image, born and unborn. He calls people before they're even born, Jeremiah and others, that we're all woven together by him. And so every human being is created in his image with dignity to be treated with respect. And so we will always stand for the life of every child that's conceived, um, seeing that life. So just wanted to make that statement. Um, and as we jump in today, as we're going through the New Testament, um, two weeks ago, I think, I'm kind of losing track now, are we three weeks in, when Jordan and I were setting it up and talking about it, um, talked about as we come to the Word of God to make sure we always have a couple of attitudes, one that we have humility, that as I'm reading through His Word and I'm encountering the things especially Jesus is saying, that whatever preconceived notions I have about Him, whatever theology I've developed, whatever I've been told by people, that I am humble and I'm, I'm letting the Word of God speak to those things and I'm, I'm, more, I'm, I'm sitting under His Word and I'm willing to, to change whatever I have to change to fit His Word. So we, we come with humility. We come with submission. I'm not just reading it for information. I'm reading it to encounter Him, but I'm reading it to obey, not just to hear, to obey. So I'm submissive to Him as my Lord and to His Word. Another word that we haven't talked about that I want to throw out today, and I'm going to throw out another one next week, is that when we read, we not only read with humility and submission, but we also need to read, if I give you this word, I think, we need to read, uh, understand, with culture in mind, culture. And by that, I'm specifically referring to understanding the cultural, what's going on when we're reading this text. On the card that we gave out that tells you how to have your meeting and how to have your quiet time, there is this quote from N.T. Wright. We read the Bible with first century eyes asking 21st century questions. And we're going to do some of that today. We're going to do even more of that next week. But anytime I'm reading the Word of God, I'm reading it with first century eyes. I'm wanting to know what did this mean to those people at that time, this conversation between John and Jesus, what did it mean to them? And then I read it with first century eyes, but then I ask 21st century questions out of it. And so we're going to try to model that today. So I'd like you to turn your Bible to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to do a story in here. The next three weeks, I think, I'm taking some passages that people 
consider difficult or have questions that I have considered difficult, but have come as I've studied them, have been very, come to be very meaningful to me. And so we're going to read today in, John, in Matthew 11. We're going to do verses 1 to 6. I'm just going to read, and I'd like you to simply listen, but if you would stand, you can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV, but would you stand with me while we read John, Matthew 11? It's about John, that's why I keep saying that. Matthew 11, verses 1 to 6. And this is what the Word of the Lord says. After Jesus had finished instructing His 12 disciples, He went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And this is the word of the Lord. And you may be seated. All right, so especially if you're going through the New Testament with us, we just finished chapter 10. And if you remember in chapter 10, he sent his 12 followers out all over Israel to teach the kingdom of God. And he's just done that. And so now he by himself is going back up into Galilee to teach and to preach there after having done that. And, um, and up to this point, his ministry has been pretty successful, you could say, very popular, just huge crowds are coming around him doing his teaching and his healing. Um, but now, if, especially if you're reading, I mean, you saw this in, in chapter 11 and 12, opposition is starting to rise, and we're going to see it even more this week as we read through Matthew. So the opposition is increasing on him. And it really all starts with a question that comes from John. And John's not in opposition to him, but Matthew is really introducing that things are going to start kind of ramping up with Jesus against him. And it really starts with a question from one of the most important people that was living at that time, um, his forerunner, John. Now we're told in verse 2 that when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah. So John's been in prison. If you remember, he's been in prison since chapter 4. Before Jesus started his ministry, it said that John was put in prison, and then he started his ministry after his baptism. We're going to learn this week in chapter 14 how he got to be put there, that Herod had, on a trip to Rome, had fallen in love with Philip, his brother's wife, started an affair with her. He came back to Israel, divorced his wife, and then he took Philip's wife, his brother, as his own bride. And John preached against that, and being angry at that, he threw John in prison. Um, the, the place that um, he threw him, I'm kind of getting behind, is this prison, this, this palace and prison, the easternmost palace that was in Israel that Herod owned. I don't want to say the word, but you can see it's on the eastern side of the Dead Sea, and it's high up, right up, I mean, it has a high view over the, the Dead Sea. That personally, for me, is not what I would call a good mountain vacation home, personally. Um, I would prefer something with a lot more trees than that in a very dry and arid area, but this is what it looked like. This is not far from where John was actually baptizing and having his ministry on the Jordan. It's a very dry, hot area, and that's where he's been sitting in prison for probably a year, people guess now. He's been in prison for a year. He had had 18 months in the limelight, and now he is stuck um, in prison doing the things you do in prison, which isn't much, right? But think to have too much time to think. And he's down probably in a dungeon in a pit that's there. And Pat and I have been over to Israel, and that area is full of limestone, and they just have these natural caverns that they would use as dungeons and as pits to throw people into. Um, you don't want to go into one of those. It's, uh, it's not a good place. 
And here he is languishing in prison. He knows that he's close to execution. And he's going through all the stuff you would go through, anybody who's in prison, right? The shame of that, the hunger, the physical torment. It's dark, it's wet, it's cold, and he's lonely. And while in prison, he starts, in the midst of his suffering, he starts having some doubts. Um, And I think many times, suffering does not suffering... Is it not at the root of some of our greatest doubts, would you not say? It's at the root of some of our greatest doubts. He was beseeched with doubts. And so John, we're told in chapter 2, in verse 2, when he was in prison, he heard about the deeds of the Messiah, and he sent disciples to ask him a question. We know from Luke's gospel that Jesus, John's disciples would frequently come to that prison and tell him what was going on, and so he was up to date on the latest things. And so he sent his disciples specifically in verse two. It's, in verse 3, it says to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? Jesus, are you the one, or should I expect somebody else? Literally in the Greek, it is, are, are you the one, or should we expect another, another? And that, to me, that's significant because in the Greek language, there's two words for another. There's the word that means another of the same kind, and there's a word that means another of a different kind. And what, Paul, what John is asking is, he's using the word another of a different kind. Like, I thought you were going to be the Messiah, and we're going to see in a minute, it wasn't what he expected. And so he says, should I be expecting, is the real Messiah coming after you, and is he of a different kind? Because you're not quite what I thought you were going to be. And so he asked that question. And when you read this, I think people's first reaction is frequently like, really, John, of all people? How could John have doubts? Was he not a giant of the faith? We're told in verse 11, a little bit later in this, Jesus said he was the greatest man to live till that time. John having doubts? I mean, think of what he saw and what he heard. When he was an infant, when he was in his mother's womb, and when Mary came and Jesus was in Mary's womb, he leapt when, when they came in the room. And he had heard that story growing up. We're told in John chapter 1 that God the Father had given him a message and told him that when he saw a dove come on somebody, that's the Messiah. And then he baptized him and it says, he said, I saw that dove, this is the one. And so he told everybody around, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just once, but twice. He said, I'm not even fit to tie his sandals. He must increase, I must decrease. This is the John that's having these doubts. How could he have doubts? And I really think the text answers that. It's in verse 2 because he's, he's in prison. He's languishing there. And I think that's what gave rise or occasion to his doubts. Specifically, his occasion of suffering and difficulty, it undercovered, uncovered, and it revealed, I think, two misconceptions that John had. And we're going to look at those in a minute. Two misconceptions that he had. And if you think about your own self, I think suffering has a way of doing that, of uncovering what I really believe and what I really think. So here are the doubts. I think they came out of two false ideas, and here they are. Number one, he had false notions about the righteous and the suffering, and he had false notions and inadequate ideas about the Messiah. Those were his two doubts. I want to talk about that first set. Um, he, He expected a very particular kind of Messiah. The Jews of that time had a very clear idea of what Messiah would be and what he would do. That when he came, he would bring an end to the old age, and he would bring in new creation, a new age, an age where God's final and full reign would happen. That's what they expected. There were three specific things that they expected to happen when Messiah came. They expected national liberation. 
For over a thousand years, they had been under the domination of another nation, and they expected when Messiah came, he would set them free from whoever was in charge, which now is Rome. They also expected justice and judgment. The Messiah would come, would bring total justice, and that also meant judgment, that he would judge all who were wicked. And in their mind at that time, we know from some of the Jewish writings, they believed not just wicked individuals, but wicked nations, and they believed that all nations other than them were wicked, the Gentile nations, and that God would bring, destroy all the other nations, and they would be the only nation left. We also know that they expected the elimination of all suffering when Messiah came, that he would bring new creation. The prophets, especially Isaiah, talked a lot about that new creation, a place where there would be no pain, no suffering, no more death, no more dying, no decay. So this was their expectation of what Messiah would bring. I want to speak briefly to two of those, this bottom one of new creation coming, the elimination of suffering. Today, Jews who still worship in their faith, because a lot of Jews in the West are atheists, but those who still worship, this is the main reason a lot of them do not believe Jesus is the Messiah is because new creation never came. In fact, in the 1400s in Spain, I saw this on PBS a couple of years ago. It was a special on like Judaism in, in Europe. And there was a great debate in the early 1400s where the Christians brought their greatest scholars from the Roman Empire. The Jews brought their greatest scholars, including one dude named Nachmanides. I'm not sure how to say it. And they had a debate, and the debate was, is Jesus the Messiah? And the primary argument that that Jewish scholar made was, is he said the Messiah would bring the new age, new creation, the elimination of all evil and suffering. That obviously hasn't happened. Jesus could not have been the Messiah. That was his main argument for it, against it. I want you to think for a minute about that second one, that thing of justice and judgment. Because that one was really significant to John, right? If you read anything that John says. That was the focus of the message God gave him. God had given him a message. Um, his message was is that he would, he would baptize in the Spirit. That, I mean, the Messiah would baptize in the Spirit. And he would baptize in fire. And the one that John focused on was the fire, right? He's going to bring his winnowing fork, and he's going to separate. He's going to chop the wheat down, and he's going to separate the good from the bad, and he's going to burn all of that up. And that was kind of his whole message. This is the John who looks at the Pharisees. He's like, you snakes. Right? That's this guy who calls out Herod. That was the whole focus of kind of his ministry. It was primarily a message of judgment. But Jesus wasn't fulfilling any of that, any of that stuff that he talked about. And what John didn't understand, what really no prophet understood before Jesus when they gave their message from God, is that their message frequently had two historical eras contained inside of it, but they, they didn't know that. So it was like looking at mountains from the front. When you're coming to the front range in Colorado, down I-70, or you're taking the highway down to, from Lyman to Colorado Springs, and you see the mountains. You can tell they're separate mountains, but they, they just look like they're all flat and kind of part of each other. And that's what a prophecy would look like to prophets before Jesus. But if you were to take those same mountains, and if you were to fly over them, look from the side, you would realize that there's actually great distance separating them. And the thing the prophets frequently didn't know is they would have one message, but what God knew is, is that message would happen in two different eras. So yes, Jesus was coming to baptize in the Spirit. He would do that in His first coming. He was coming as the suffering Messiah, the one who would die for sin, and after His death, burial, and resurrection would baptize His followers in the Spirit. But that baptism of fire, that thing wouldn't happen for, I mean, who knows, 2,000 years, 3,000, I don't know. When he comes as king, that's when he'll come as judge to baptize with fire. But John didn't know that. And so to John, Jesus' ministry had not measured up to any of this. 
Jesus had, had, like, had done none of that stuff, none of that stuff. Under his ministry, there had been no vindication of the nation of Israel, no execution of justice, no judgment, no obliteration of the wicked, no avenging of the righteous, no sudden bringing in of new creation. Instead, he talked about really weird things like, see these Romans? Forgive them, pray for them, bless them. If they ask you to carry their sack for a, their backpack for a mile, you take it two miles. That's not at all what they expected to hear from Messiah. You know, so you can't fault John for his question. Should I expect a different kind of Messiah? You can't fault him for that because even Jesus' 12 core followers who followed him day in and day out, they didn't understand this stuff. I think it may be this week, I haven't looked ahead, but this week or next, we're going to get to Matthew 16 where Jesus says to him and confesses, you are the Messiah, you are the son of the living God. And Jesus says, you didn't come up with that on your own. That was revealed to you by the Father. And then he says, by the way, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Romans and the Jewish elders are going to put me to death. And Peter immediately rebukes him and says, no way, Messiah doesn't die. He's a conquering victor, right? So nobody in that culture got it. His other second false notion would be, he had false notions about the righteous and suffering. And we know from Jewish writings at the time that everybody in that culture had this kind of expectation. The expectation that God would faithfully guarantee the earthly blessing, the good life to those who followed him, the righteous. The righteous shouldn't suffer. It wasn't their culture that just had that idea. That's the default of human nature, is it not? The default of human nature is that I should get what I deserve. I do good, I deserve good. And if I do bad, I deserve bad. It's, it's what is called retribution theology. We all struggle with that. They did then, I think we do today. Um, you know, when a believer who, fa- who has faithfully served God for many years and then experiences tragedy, perhaps a series of tragedies, it's not difficult to wonder, like, God, where's your love and justice in this, Right? So this is so common, I think, for human nature to believe that. Um, And John, like everybody else, believed in that. He had faithfully done everything God asked him to do, and God owed him a rescue, right? And his question is almost like, okay, if you're the Messiah, like, where are you now that I I need your help? Like, what are you doing? Are you forgetting me here? Um, I'm your righteous servant. But I want you to understand this human fault, default human understanding that you deserve things is the total opposite of grace. And Scripture is all about grace, and God is all about grace. And the problem was then as well as now, this thing that I think we all tend to believe, it's a false narrative. I mean, we just read John, I mean, Matthew 10, right? Just read Matthew 10. Do you remember in Matthew 10, he tells his followers, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. You're going to go to towns and houses, and most people are going to reject you and kick you out. In fact, you're going to be arrested, and you're going to be beaten and put on trial for my namesake. That's what he already told them in chapter 10. In John 16, he's going to say that your life will have troubles. And as we read the New Testament, it's all in the New Testament that God's people will suffer. There is no prosperity gospel in the Bible Jesus never taught that we would have health and wealth in this life. That's not a biblical thought. But the bottom line is because of both of these things, these expectations, and out of that, the expectation he would be set free because it didn't go as expected that John has doubts. Jesus, why am I still in jail? Why am I rotting here? Aren't you going to break me out? Like in the old westerns, like John Wayne show up and 
tie the horses to the bars and break the wall out? Aren't you the great victor who's going to make everything right, Jesus? Aren't the righteous always blessed and vindicated in this life? So what I see in this text and what we see all through the Gospels is that Jesus, his life, his ministry, his example, his teachings did not measure up to human expectation. Didn't measure up. So Jesus replies, verse 4, Go back and I want you to report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor. And for those that have been reading through, we just read all of that in chapters 8 and 9, right? He healed a centurion servant. He raised, raised a girl from the dead and healed a woman with a bleeding problem. And he healed some lepers and some blind men and a guy that was mute and demon-possessed. He's been doing all of that. And he's just recounting all of those for John. But John's heard stories, right? John knows that stuff. But he's not just recounting those things. Jesus is actually doing more because in verse, verses 4 and 5, Jesus is actually quoting the prophet Isaiah. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah in chapter 35, 29, and 61. And so what he's doing is he's actually wanting to point John back to the messianic promises of the Old Testament because these were messianic promises that you didn't read about in the literature of that day. They were solely focused on the messianic scriptures that talked about the Messiah being a conqueror and a victor. That was their sole focus. And he's trying to get him to rethink the way he thinks about Messiah. So he's pointing him to Isaiah. And interestingly to me, that last one, he leaves off the second half of verse 1 intentionally. He doesn't say it. And John would know that once he heard this. And here's what the rest of the verse says. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for, for who? For captives and release from darkness for the who? Prisoners. And he doesn't quote that. Because Jesus is coming to set free captives and prisoners, but people who are captive to sin and slaves to sin. But he knew if he says that, John's going to take it like free from prison, right? So he leaves that off because he's trying to get rid of that expectation that John has. I also think that by pointing him to Isaiah, Jesus is also hoping, read Isaiah again, the whole book. Look at all the messianic prophecies because Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant who will give his life as a penalty offering for sin. So he's trying to redirect John's attention. And then I love verse 6. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. That word stumble is a strong word in the Greek. It's a really strong word. It's uh, the word skandalizo. We get our word scandalize or scandalous from it. That's a strong word, right? It's to be tripped up, to take offense, to be offended, to cause, to stumble, to fall away. And John should know this. John should know that in Isaiah it says that when Messiah comes, people will stumble and fall and be broken over the Messiah. So he's reminding them of that. Reminding them that that's one of the outcomes that will happen. And I think he says this for a really important reason because he wants John to realize something that I think he would say to all of us. That you can stumble over Jesus if you have the wrong expectations of him. It is possible for a believer to stumble over Jesus if you have wrong expectations of him. That's sobering, isn't it? That's a sobering thought. I just I love his answer in 4, 5, and 6, how he declares what he's done, and then this statement. To me, it's so Jesus. I just love it. Partly it's so Jesus because I didn't understand it for 50 years, you know. <laughs> He is so gracious to John. He could have rebuked him for his doubt, but he doesn't do that. I think it's a very loving answer, and it's an invitation to John to trust. 
He's, he's not saying, I'm the one, but he's saying, I'm the one. He's like, John, I'm the one, just not the one you expected in the way you expected. So I want you to choose trust, trust in me. And if you do that, you will be blessed in this life in ways you can't imagine, in ways that you can't imagine. Great text. I, I love that story. Because it's a story of doubt. And don't we all struggle with doubt? So we read the Bible with first century eyes. And then we ask 21st century questions. So I want to ask some 21st century questions or think about our lives. And I want to speak for a minute about expectations. Because I think that a lot, if not all, but a lot of our doubts come from Unmet expectations we place on God. Unmet expectations we place on God. That Jesus is not who we think he should be, and he doesn't do what we think he should do. Here's something about expectations. Many of our expectations, and and this is, by the way, really important, this whole topic, because I think a lot of our misunderstanding and our conflict with each other goes back to expectations. So this doesn't just apply to John. This applies to you and how we relate to each other even in here. Or problems with expectations in relationships. Many of them are unrealistic. Secondly, many of them are assumed and they're never spoken to the other person. And many of them are unconscious. We don't even know we have those expectations until somebody fails to meet them and then we get disappointed and then we're like, oh, yeah, I kind of expected. And then... The fourth one is many of them are unagreed upon, unagreed upon. And I want to tell you, in your relationship with God and relationships with other people is a rule of thumb. An expectation is only valid when it is conscious, when it is spoken, when it is considered realistic by both of us, and when it is agreed upon by both of us. That's the only time expectations are valid. That's why one of the most important relational skills any of us can develop is clarifying expectations with people. And I had this thought this week. I wonder how many of our expectations of God are mutually agreed upon by Him. That if we took them before Him, He might say, I don't quite agree with that one. And that's not a right expectation. So, before landing this plane, I want to say two things about doubt and then do some application. So, about doubt, um, I just want to remind everybody that doubt is the air we breathe today. In our modern secular society, Charles Taylor wrote a lot about this. The living in a post, we live in a post-Christian society that's very pluralistic, right? Very pluralistic. And as he says, our beliefs are contested daily. And it doesn't matter who you are. Our beliefs are contested daily in this time and age. And he talks about the fact that, I mean, at work, in your classrooms... Even in your family, in your neighborhood, you've got a Buddhist in there, you've got a Hindu, you've got an agnostic, you've got an atheist. And they're all pretty fine people, right? And they look like their lives are going well. And it creates this sense of like, this, this thing of like, you know, are my beliefs right? And it's something that everybody in our, our, our culture is struggling with. Charles Taylor talks about that everybody in our culture, we're all Thomas now, that we all have doubts at times. I was reading a blog post by an atheist recently, and they were asking the question, what if the Christians are right? Everybody has doubts now. So I want to say something about that. Since we're all Thomas, that this is really especially true of the younger generation. They are experiencing this in ways that even my or my parents didn't experience. So for, thus, for those of us that are older who maybe don't struggle with doubts, though if you say you don't doubt, I doubt that. 
Can I say that? I don't know. But for those of us maybe who struggle less to be patient with people, younger people, if they struggle with doubts and to come alongside of them instead of pointing a finger, being more like Jesus was to John. Secondly, the doubt is not the same as unbelief. It's not the same as unbelief. Doubt is faith seeking answers. It is a search for the truth. It's the struggle to believe. That's what doubt is. G. Campbell Morgan, a great, see, these are great saints of the age. G. Campbell Morgan said, faith is the answer to a question. Leonard Sweet, questions are quests. And Elizabeth Elliot, I mean, you can't deny her sainthood, right? Uh, faith does not eliminate questions. Faith just knows where to take them. We see consistently in Jesus, we can see consistently in Scripture, that when people brought honest, inquiring questions to Jesus, their doubts, he took them seriously. Jesus didn't say in verse 6, blessed are those who don't doubt. What he said is, blessed are those, even when they doubt, don't stumble. Okay? Really important. And that's why at 12th, it's my desire, I think we've been this way, but I want to publicly say it, that this be a place where people can and should bring their doubts. All of us should be able to. That's my desire for here. Jason Hubner with the college ministry, that's his desire. With the waters and, the, I mean, the other guys, the blockers and Jen who work with the college students, that, that they would be of that same, that this is a place to bring doubts. With Jordan and the youth, this is a place to bring your doubts. Because we believe that doubts are not the same as unbelief. Unbelief, by the way, um, is a stubborn refusal to believe. That's what unbelief is, a stubborn refusal to believe. Like we saw this week in the reading, Jesus heals on the Sabbath a dude's hand in front of them. His whole life, he's had this crippled hand. Jesus heals it, and the Pharisees get angry, and they get together afterwards, and they start talking about, how do we kill this guy? Instead of saying, whoa, maybe he's the Messiah, right? They have unbelief. They want to get rid of him. So that's the difference between that and doubt. Okay, application. Application. Some, some advice, and most of these come from the text. So number one, without, oh yeah, James K. Smith, doubt is not an enemy of faith, but it's a companion. I love that quote. So number one, check your expectations. That's what John was doing. Jesus didn't meet his expectations, and he was asking for clarification. I love that he asked the question, so he was checking expectations. Many of our problems with God, and I think our resulting doubts, come from expectations that we put on him that he would not agree to. I've got a little booklet this week on angry at God, and I was reading it, and he says that the operative clause that's underneath anger at God is this, God should have, should have expectations. And I want to tell you, I mean, for all of us reading through the New Testament, does Jesus ever fit anybody's preconceived expectations ever? I mean, I'm, re I'm reading one paragraph, and I'm like, that is the most profound thing I've heard in my life. Only the creator of the universe could speak that truth. And then I get to the next paragraph, and I'm like, what in the world is he talking about? I'm so confused. And then I turn the page, and I'm like, that's the most offensive thing I've ever heard. Like, Jesus, what are you saying, right? In fact, next week, we're going to read one of those, and that's what I'm going to preach on next week. One of the most offensive things he ever said. Um, there's a reason. He's the creator, and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. Of course, we're going to have expectations of him that aren't going to be true. So in your doubts, just simply be aware that we all have expectations of God that maybe he hasn't agreed to. And remember, it is possible to stumble over Jesus if he doesn't meet our expectations. Number two, so check your expectations, ask your questions. 
John did. Jesus always listened to people's questions, just like John's. It's all throughout the Bible. There is no shame in good questions, especially in asking them, seek the truth. Here's how Jesus put it to John in verse 4. Go back and report to John what you hear and what you see. I love this. Jesus offers objective evidence for John's doubts. I'm doing things that are, object, that are objective and that are verifiable. It's the same thing he said to Thomas with his doubts. Look and see. Feel and touch, Thomas. Thomas, it's real. So I challenge you. Go to objective sources with your doubts. Look into the reliability of the Bible, the evidence for that, the reliability for the New Testament. Go to the touchstone of Christianity, the resurrection, and look at the historical evidence for that. I had to do all of that in my journey, and I found it very compelling. There is objective evidence there if you'll look for it. If you have questions and don't know where to look, come talk to me. I ask so many of those questions on my path to Jesus that people ask after the path a lot of times. So I've, I've asked a lot of those. I would love to talk with you. If you want one book, I just thought of one resource. Gregory Boyd's Letters to a Skeptic is a powerful book. His father was an atheist, just like my father, and he started a correspondence with his dad, and his dad would write a letter of an objection to Christianity or the Bible, and then Gregory would answer that. And over the course of this book, his father became a believer. I gave this to my dad when I found it, went through it with him. Okay. So, ask your questions. Bring them to the community. Bring your doubts to the community. We just kind of talked about that. Again, John did. When he sent his followers, he knew that those, that question would be get asked in public view of a lot of people would hear about his doubt, but he took it to the community. He took it to them. And I want to challenge you to do the same thing. Take your doubts to the believing community, unashamedly. Whoever's in your group, your small group, the people you love and trust, go to those people. Don't just keep your doubts in here. I've done this before. To only hear from one single lone voice in here. I don't know about your voice, but I don't trust mine. I've learned that over time. So don't get stuck in here, but take those things to the community. You're your own worst advisor. Number four, go to the Word of God. That's what John, Jesus did with John. I love it. He gives him the evidence, but he's also referring him back to Isaiah. He's pointing him to the Word of God. He could have said, hey, yep, I'm him, but he doesn't do that. He's like, John, go back to Isaiah. Read the scrolls about Messiah. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ. So take your expectations of God and your doubts and questions, take them to the word and ask, it, ask the question, is this a legitimate expectation that I have? And seek in the word and look for it. And again, do it in the context of community. Take trusted people with you like, hey, help me go through, you know the word better than I do or you've walked longer. Can you, what does the word say about this? So go through the word. Five, stay emotionally healthy, emotionally and physically healthy. Boy, doubt is such an emotional and even a physiological thing. I think sometimes as much as intellectual. It's all of that. We're whole people. Um, it is no coincidence to me that John's asking these questions in prison alone, not thriving emotionally and physically. So I just want to challenge you, take care of yourself. Eat well, exercise. Take care of yourself emotionally. Have friends, relationships. Do some fun things. Get out of the house. Get out of your head a little bit. And know that there are seasons like the middle of the winter when emotionally and physiologically doubts are just, because of, of the season, doubts are easier to arise. So just understand that. Take care of yourself. And then finally, I want to tell you, take them to Jesus, most importantly. Take them to Jesus. Go straight to the source. 
That's what John did. He had doubts. He had heard secondhand stories of Jesus, but he's like, I want a message from me. And he said, you go talk to Jesus and you bring a message from him to me. And that's exactly what they did. And I love that he went to Jesus. He wanted that direct message. That's part of the reason we're going through the New Testament this year is because Jesus is all over the whole thing. It's all about him. Is We're wanting to focus on him, especially like the first almost half of the year, 40%, I think, we're going to be in the four Gospels. So as you read, look at Jesus, okay? Hear his truth. See his goodness. Feel his beauty because he is beautiful. He's good and he's true. Keep your eyes focused on him. And I want to finish with this. For those who are doubting today because of pain and suffering, either your own or somebody else or both, I want to talk to you for a minute, okay? Especially you, I want to say, look to Jesus. Because Jesus never did a single thing to relieve John's confinement from prison. His circumstances never improved, and he died So does that mean Jesus didn't care? No, actually it means he did care. And let me tell you why. Because Jesus came on this first mission to earth for a bigger thing than just somebody being prisoned. He came to die for our sin and to set us free from sin and death. That's what he was about. And the most loving thing he could do for John was to stay on that mission and go to the cross for him. Does that make sense? It was the most loving thing he could do. And if your doubts are coming out of suffering, I want you to hear, because Jesus was arrested the night before he died. He was arrested, just like John. He was arrested for John. He was arrested for me. He was arrested for you. And then he was thrown in prison that night under Caiaphas' house. We've been to Israel. They think they have found his house. We saw it. We went into the caverns under that house where they still had holes in the wall where they would chain people. And there was one particular dark pit pit that was even deeper than the others that they would throw people into. And we got down there and they turned the lights off and it was pitch black. It was horrendous. I want you to know, John went to prison, but so did Jesus. And he went to prison for John And he went to prison for me, and he went in that deep, dark pit for you. And then the next day, he was taken out of that, and he was beaten, and he was mocked, and he was tortured, probably just like John. And he did that for John, and he did it for me, and he did it for you. And then he was hung on a cross, and on that cross, Jesus had doubts. My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? He had the same doubts John had, the same doubts I have, the same doubts that you have. He had those doubts for John, and he had them for me, and he had them for you. And then he was put to death, just like John, but his death was far worse, the worst execution ever created. He died just like John, and he died for John, and he died for me, and he died for you. John didn't choose 
any of what happened to him. But I want you to know, Jesus chose all of that for John. And he chose it for me. And he chose it for you. Is that not good and true and beautiful? So if you're having doubts because of suffering, look to Jesus, the one who chose and took our suffering and experienced it on himself out of his great love for us. I point you to Jesus. Can we pray? Father, thank you for sending your son. Jesus, thank you for coming into this earth instead of being that conquering victory that you came as the suffering servant to die for my sin, to take my death upon yourself what I deserve. That you experienced all the suffering, all the pain we do, all the doubts that we do, and you did that so you can be a faithful and merciful and gracious high priest on the throne whom we can come to in strength and time of need for grace and help. And Lord, we come to you today. And Lord, help us to come to you always. Help us with our doubts. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. All right. If you want a New Testament, you're here and you don't have one, come see me. Everybody else, there is a lost world out there who Jesus died for, and you are sent into that world.